So I wanted to take a minute and try and explain why we are doing this series called Special Days, because it's pretty out of character for us. Uh, we're not a liturgical church, and yet uh, last week we had a, uh, a sermon on Pentecost Sunday, and today is Trinity Sunday. And we, uh, with the exception of Advent and Lent, you know, Christmas and Easter, we don't tend to pay a lot of attention to the church calendar. So why all of a sudden would we uh, clue in to these specific days? Why, why go out of our way to highlight them when we haven't in the past? And, and the reason is because um, the more I have been reading about the future, the more I see the need for anchors to the past. Uh, there is, in every field, uh, there's a lunatic fringe. And in the field of future studies, there's a huge lunatic fringe. There's lots of people who write books about, this is what's going to happen, and I'm like, says who? On the basis of what? Did you just make this up? Did you just dream this? Why? How are you getting to these points? There are some who write very thoughtful uh, books about what's happening. And, and what I've come to understand is they're always grounding what they're saying on the past. They're going back and saying, what's going on right now is very much like the ninth century. Or what's going on right now is very much like Roman, the Roman Empire at this point. And, and they, they pull this together. Both Peter Drucker and Winston Churchill are credited with the statement, if you want to look ahead, you have to look back. And the further ahead you want to look, the further back you have to study. Uh, I actually doubt either one of them said that line. Uh, the fact that it's attributed to both of them sort of negates it. But, but there is a point there. And that is so antithetical to who we have become. We are, we are chronological snobs. We are wrapped up in the moment. We think we're better than the people who live before us. We're, we're smarter. We, they're, they're old. They were, they were crazy. They were tired. They were slow. They didn't get it. Uh, we now know we're, we're cutting edge, right? And, and uh, used to be that you didn't want to be on the cutting edge. Used to be you didn't want something that was new. You wanted something that was tested. You wanted something that was established. You wanted something that was proven. Now it's like, dude, you got an iPhone 4. I mean, good grief. It's like whole revolutions of technology have happened since the iPhone 4. That was like, you know, 2014. You got to get a new phone in order to be, in order to be somebody. And, and that, that's just sort of crazy that we've gone to that extreme. So I'm saying, I, I, I'm looking for some anchors. And uh, an anchor, of course, can be a bad thing. It can hold you back. But if you, uh, as a sailor, if you, uh, we're ever going to spend the night in a boat, not at a harbor, but out in a bay. Uh, you've gone to some cove and you wanted to spend the night in the boat. You know, it's all about setting the anchor. <laughs> if you set the anchor well, then you can go to sleep. But if you don't get that anchor set well, then you're worried that it, as you go to sleep, the boat's going to drift away, it's going to drift into the rocks, it's going to drift into another boat. And so there are reasons to have some ties to things that hold us in place. And I do think that a lot more change is coming. And so, so not as a pattern going forward, but occasionally I think it's, it's in our best interest to look back at some of these, uh, some of these anchoring moments. And so Pentecost uh, last week was... Uh, it's, it's just a reminder of God's sweeping plan. So back in Genesis, we've got the whole chaos that happens with the Tower of Babel, and, and the languages are confused. 
And then at Pentecost, the birth of the church, the Holy Spirit comes, the, falls on those gathered in the upper room, and suddenly the languages are clear again, right? And everybody can communicate. And, and then what Jared did is he looked forward to that moment as a foreshadowing of heaven. Revelation 5, when every, there will be people from every tribe and tongue, right? And everybody understands each other. And so that, that's just a, it's a pivotal moment to look back on. The Trinity is another one of those uh, moments. And just so you know, discussions, theological discussions about the Trinity are almost always arguments about Jesus, uh, about whether or not he is really who he claims to be, or something slightly less than that. And so those are, that's the way these things unfold. And back uh, in an era before there were newspapers and radios and blogs and tweets and everything else, one of the things that people would do in order to disseminate an idea is they would uh, put it to a jingle. They would, they would tie it and give it a little tune that was catchy that people could memorize the, this line. And that is actually what we have with the Gloria Patri. Now, it doesn't play out that way today. But there was a guy by the name of Arius back uh, uh, almost 2,000 years ago. And Arius was one of those guys who said, Jesus is a good guy. He's a great guy. He's the best guy ever. He's a great teacher. He's full of wisdom. He is a moral example. He's a reformer. He, he deserves worship. But he's not God. Fully, in the fullest sense. He's not equal to God the Father. And one of the fine arguments that was being made at that point was Arius was saying there was a day before Jesus. Okay, so Jesus was made by God the Father at a certain point. So there was a moment in time when God the Father existed and God the Son did not. And so he put all this to a little catchy uh, tune and people were singing it. And in response, people wrote, the, somebody wrote the Gloria Patri, which is, uh, glory be to the Father and to the Son, right? And to the Holy Spirit. And then it, as it was in the very beginning is now and ever shall be. There was never a moment before Jesus was fully God. So these are fighting words. Uh, now, it's not the way it gets sung today, right? It's a sort of, you know, we've got, we got these tunes that come out of uh, uh, the Middle Ages and, and sometimes it's just very quiet and contemplative. Uh, but this was, this was a shouting match. That's what these words were for. This is, this is uh, you know, this is we've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got spirit. No, we've got more, right? We're in your face. That, that's what was happening with these chants. And uh, we're going to play just a, a short little video, but I want to, it's going to have this picture accompanying it. And uh, the, this picture is, a, is an icon from the 15th century. And can we pull that up? So this, uh, this is one of the most famous icons of all time. So we don't do icons. There was, a, there was a split. The first split in the church happened in the 11th century. It's called the Great Schism. And when the Great Schism happened, it was largely over icons. There were some other things in play as well. But, but the Eastern Church, so the Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, those Orthodox capital O churches, they wanted icons. And the Western Church said, that looks like an idol to me, right? You're praying to this 
this idol. And they go, no, no, it's not. We're not praying to it. We're praying through it. It's a window that allows us to go to God. And, and there was a fight. And so the Western church says, nope, we're not doing this. And the Eastern church says, yes, we're going to do this. And so you have these icons. This one, uh, very famous, it is a representation of Genesis 18, where the angels appeared to Abraham and Sarah at the time, Abraham and Sarah, because they have not yet had Isaac. So Genesis 12 is when God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to give you a son. Uh, you know, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. But there is no descendants, right? And so time goes on and they're panicking. We don't have any descendants. And so uh, these, these three angels appear to Abraham and they say, this time next year, uh, your wife Sarah is going to be pregnant. And Sarah laughs. She's an, uh, an older woman. She laughs. And the, na- the Hebrew word for laughter is Isaac. So Isaac is going to be born uh, later on. So you can't, the second commandment prohibits making images of God. So what, what uh, those who, in, technically you don't paint an icon, you write it. I don't understand that. But you, but you follow an exact formula and you write this picture. So those who write these pictures are careful not to ever give a picture of God. So here you have these three angels. And the angel on the left is to represent God the Father. And, and he's blessing the chalice. The angel in the middle with the purple on, that's royalty, that's Jesus. He's the king, king of kings. And then the angel on the right uh, is to represent the Holy Spirit in green. And so this is a depiction of the Trinity. And we have a, a one-minute uh, video of the Gloria Patri sung in uh, in Latin, very, it's, it's not a, it doesn't sound like a fighting song here. Uh, but uh, let's play the let's play the glory of Patrick. So as I said, that's not exactly a chant. It's not a fight song. It's not an in-your-face moment. Uh, much, it's, it's been repurposed, we'll say that. Uh, but uh, we, we see the need for some anchors to the past. So that raises the question, why would the Trinity be one of those anchors? Right? I mean, Trinity always strikes some people as bad math, and the word Trinity is not in the Bible, uh, and and there's, there's more pressing issues, right? Like, wow, how do I get along with my wife or my husband or my boss or my neighbor or, you know, I, I, I'm unemployed or I'm depressed or I've got cancer. Or I, I'm, I'm looking for help here on Sunday morning. Why would, would, would the church 
set aside a day, right? A special day to think about the Trinity. Well, let me say this. Um, we're headed towards uh, the, the recitation of the Athanasian Creed, which is long. That's how we're going we're gonna to end uh, this sermon. Um, so let me just say, it's, it's one of the big creeds in the church. So the creeds are, are these summary statements uh, that, that, that the Christian faith is reduced down to some specific talking points. The Apostles' Creed is sort of unique. It was not, by the way, written by the Apostles. It comes later than that. But uh, the Apostles' Creed's purpose was, was a, a summary statement uh, sort of the minimum that you had to affirm in order to be baptized. You had to, you had to agree in the early church to the Apostles' Creed. Uh, now, even the Apostles' Creed is like the other creeds in that it is written uh, in the context of a controversy to sort of delineate some very specific things. You can, you're free to believe whatever you want, right? But you can only call certain things the Christian faith. And it's not that everybody has to believe exactly everything about everything, but there are the fence posts, right, that are the non-negotiables that we have to hold on to. And, and usually those fence posts get established out of controversy, somebody saying something slightly different. The Apostles' Creed is a little different. Now, there, there's, even, there's even a little bit of that in the Apostles' Creed, and I always sort of smile inside when we're repeating the Apostles' Creed because I suspect that's, that most people don't don't understand what they're affirming at certain points. For instance, there's a line, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And uh, I think if people are paying attention, they're thinking, well, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what I'm affirming. But that's not what that means. Uh, so one of the early controversies in the church is that there was too many, too many that had read Plato and they were wrapped up in this Greek idea that the physical world is bad. The spiritual is good, the physical is bad, which is not Christian, right? We, we say, no, God made a good physical world. Now, the physical world is broken by sin, but so is the spiritual world. So, so uh, early, and you see this even in New Testament books, they're, they're fighting against this Greek influence. They're fighting against what we call Gnosticism. And so in the Apostles' Creed, one of the lines is, I believe in the resurrection of the body, right? That Jesus rose physically from the dead, and we will have new physical bodies in heaven. Heaven isn't a mystical, magical, spiritual, ethereal, vaporous existence. It's a real, we have real physical bodies. God is going to redeem and restore all things, and, and that includes the physical. And so that's what that is affirming. But for the most part, it was just a summary statement of things we needed to believe in order to say, I'm ready to be identified with Christ by being baptized. The other creeds, and there's a bunch of them, the other creeds, there are some main ones. And the, the three first big main ones, it's the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the Chalcedonian Creed. And they are all effectively about Jesus and the Trinity. So the Nicene Creed was written... Uh, first, and it is written in the early 4th century, right after Constantine issues the Edict of Toleration. And it's a, it's a very important creed because it was a very important gathering. It was the first time in the history of the church that the leaders of the church could meet together. Because for the first 300 years, starting in the book of Acts, right, to be a Christian was to be persecuted. And so you couldn't, you couldn't 
uh, you call a meeting. You couldn't have all the church leaders get together. They'd all be killed. They'd all be arrested. They'll be fed to the lions, right? So the church is underground. Christians are persecuted for the first three centuries. Constantine then comes to power. He's, uh, he's a Roman leader. He's a general. And uh, he is making a play. There's a big battle. And on the night before the battle, he has a vision in which he is told to, to conquer under the sign of the cross. And so he has all of his soldiers paint a cross on their, on their armor. And he does, in fact, uh, prevail in the big battle. So he becomes, uh, he becomes a Christian and he becomes the emperor of Rome. So he issues in the early 4th century, he issues this uh, edict of toleration saying it's now okay to be a Christian. It's okay to really believe whatever you want to believe, but you cannot persecute people because they are Christ followers. And he calls a meeting in Nicaea, which is a small city in Turkey today. Uh, It's in Nicaea because his capital, his palace, everything had not yet been built. Uh, That's going to be built in Constantinople, he named it after himself, we call it Istanbul today, but he was building a big, huge capital, but it wasn't done yet. So Nicaea is his summer escape, and so he has all these church leaders come to Nicaea to meet with him. And at the Council of Nicaea, they do a variety of things. They, they set a date for Easter. I think we all think they did a bad job because they sort of get this roving thing tied to the lunar calendar and we can never figure out when Easter's going to happen. But that's, that's when they decided that. They agree on the books that are going to be in the New Testament. Okay? They don't vote on them. They just realize they all recognize the same 27 books as having apostolic authority. So the New Testament gets sort of finalized at that point. And they have this long discussion uh, about this claim by Arius, who, uh, who said that Jesus was God-like but not God. And, and they say, how are we going to deal with this guy? And they come out with this creed, the Nicene Creed. And uh, some people, Dan Brown and others will say, you know, Jesus got established as Lord in a close vote uh, in Nicaea. Nobody thought Jesus was Lord until then. That's just crazy talk. And, and first of all, it wasn't even a close vote. It was 308 to 2. Arius gets one of his friends to vote with him. Other than that, it's, it's you know, everybody says, Arius, this is heresy. Jesus is God. So they come out with the Nicene Creed. For the next 50 years, we don't, we don't really know what happens to Arius, but for the next 50 years, his followers keep coming back. And if this was Arius' position, Jesus is a great, the greatest person to ever live. He's the greatest teacher. He's worthy of worship. He's a moral reformer. He's wonderful, but he's not God. And this is the orthodox. Jesus is fully God and fully man. They just kept coming closer and closer and closer. And we call all of this semi-Arianism, which... We'll be on the quiz later on, so just pay attention. (laughs) So they keep getting closer and closer and closer, and uh, Athanasius is involved for 50 years in fights to just keep shutting these people down and saying, no, (laughs) what we're saying is Jesus is who he claimed to be, fully God. And if you don't say fully God, if you're going to qualify this in any way, then that's not the Christian faith. So Athanasius uh, and others eventually come out with this creed we call the Athanasian Creed, which is long. 
and it reads like, a, it, like if you're buying a house or buying a car and there's like 80 pages that you got to sign and they keep saying, this is this one, this is this one. That's sort of what the Athanasian Creed sounds like. Like every conceivable angle, any possible wiggle room somebody could come up with, they're shutting it down in the Athanasian Creed. So I doubt you've ever read it. Uh, it's five minutes. We're going to say it in just a minute. So uh, limber up or whatever you need to be ready. So... There's one other creed that happens, and this is the Chalcedonian creed. And this is, uh, this is a 5th century creed that, that comes up because some people say, Jesus is God, he's fully God, but he's not fully man. Okay? And some of that language is found in the Athanasian creed. You'll see them saying, Jesus is fully God and fully man. But there's all this wiggle room on that. People will say, he was fully God and fully man, just not at the same moment. He just vacillated back, you know, 10 times a second. Or he was fully God and he looked like he was fully man, but he was just slightly less than fully man. I mean, they just, so the Cappadocian Creed is just, they come at, uh, excuse me, not Cap- Chalcedonian. The Chalcedonian Creed, they come at that issue from every conceivable angle. So, so we're going to recite the Athanasius Athanasius' creed. But that still doesn't answer the question. Who cares about the Trinity? Why would it be so important? Right? Why does this issue get singled out? So I want, to give you, I want to give you four reasons. The first one is because what we're really fighting over is whether or not Jesus is God. Right? That's what topics and discussions about the Trinity are about. The second one is because this is what the Bible teaches. So there is not a passage in the Bible that, that says God is triune in nature, right? What we get in the Old Testament is that there's one God. I mean, that's one of the biggest ideas. There's only one God. And what we get in the New Testament is Jesus is God. The Jews were like the last people to ever conceptually be able to go and say Jesus is God. But they're with him and they go, okay, he's God. I've been with him. There's no question he's God. But there's only one God and God is in heaven. So they're holding on to this initially like, I don't know how to reconcile these two ideas. And then, of course, after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And and what gets worked out in our language, creedal language, is that Jesus is that God is one God in three persons. One essence, three persona. And, and this idea is developed in Scripture. It's sort of mirrored. We see it in Luke chapter 3 at the baptism of, of Christ. So uh, Jesus is baptized. He comes up out of the water. So there's Jesus. And, and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And the voice of God the Father says, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Right? And so we have, we have the... Uh, uh, all three members of the Trinity there. We get it again uh, when Jesus is commissioning his followers in Matthew 28. He says, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, not in the names, but in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And then we get, we get it in a, in a hint in 2 uh, Corinthians at the end, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul's benediction, which is the benediction that I often use, uh, and that is, you know, the, it's the love of it's the it's the love of God the Father, and it's the it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the fellowship of the Spirit of God. Right. So there's Trinitarian ideas in Scripture. 
So that's a second reason we would affirm it. A third reason that I think it's important for us to study the Trinity, to contemplate the Trinity, is because the more we know about God, the the deeper we look at God, the more we understand ourselves and the more we get a sense of of his gravitas and the more peace that we find in reflecting on his nature. So the more we learn about the Trinity, the more we understand about ourselves. One of the things you need to understand about yourself is you were made in the image of a God who has always enjoyed relationships. He's never been alone, right? He has always enjoyed the perfect company of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's never been a moment that God was lonely because he's never been alone. He's always, there's always been a party going on, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the worst things that can happen to us is right, solitary confinement. Because we were never made to be alone. We were made to be in relationships with other people. We can also, in looking at at God the Father, we also get coaching on just how to be a better person. How to be a better friend. So you just look at what happens within the Trinity. If you you study the interaction of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Scripture, you see that, that the Son is always deferring to the Father. Right? They're equal. Completely equal. They're, they're, they're completely equal, and yet Jesus will say things like, I don't want to do this. Garden of Gethsemane. I don't want to do this. Nevertheless, this is your plan. This is your plan, and I will do your plan. Right? Not my will, but your will be done. We get the same sort of coaching and teaching in Philippians chapter 2, where uh, the, the, one of the earliest hymns of the church, and there Paul uh, repeats this and he says, Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, right, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. So although he's fully God in heaven with the Father, he doesn't hold on to that. He doesn't cling to that, but he empties himself. He, he takes the form of a bondservant. He becomes a servant. He becomes a slave and goes to his death, right? And, and so we see Jesus deferring to the plan and to the Father. So what does the Father do with Jesus? We keep reading Philippians 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And, and furthermore, every time we hear God's voice in the New Testament, every time, it's always to exalt the Son. This is my Son whom I love. I am so proud of him. That's that's what we hear in God's voice in the New Testament. So you see them, and the Spirit of God sort of of just is always deferring to the Father and the Son. So we see in this community, we see them always pushing the other one forward. A number of years ago, there was a book out that was quite popular. It was called The Shack. And I talked about it when it came out because lots of people were reading it. It was a little controversial. And, uh, and the shack, in the shack, it's a, it's a story told about uh, a father, a guy by the name of Mac, whose youngest daughter is horrifically kidnapped and killed. Uh, and he goes into a deep depression. 
He had been a Christian, sort of going through life. This happens. He just plunges. He calls it the great sadness, and he just cannot move on. And then eventually, he's invited to meet with God uh, in, at the shack where his daughter was killed. And when he goes to meet with God, God manifests himself in this book uh, as God the Father was, is a middle-aged African-American woman called Papa. Uh, God the Son is a Middle Eastern carpenter. And God the Spirit is a sort of wispy Asian-American woman. And uh, so the book, look, in Luke, thir- in Luke 15, God is portrayed as a shepherd and then as a woman who loses a coin and then as a father. There's, C.S. Lewis famously portrays uh, Jesus as a lion in the Chronicles of Narnia. There's precedent for doing some of this. But in the, in the shack, uh, the author pushes it a little bit too far. And he goes in a couple directions. He says some other things that, that led me to say, I can't, I can't recommend this book. Uh, there's, there's, it just, I, can't, I can't go there. But here's what I really liked about the book. And that is the, the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was one of such great joy. It really was a party going on. And he gets invited into the company of that party. And uh, so I just think, I think when we look at the Trinity, when we look at who God is, we learn about ourselves and we also learn more about God that gives us more stability and peace in a world where we need some anchors. Now, there's other things I could also say. If, if it wasn't for the Trinity, right, I don't know how we come up with God being transcendent, <laughs> you know, like unapproachable, and living inside us, right? How do you put those two together? I don't know how you have a God who is both just, righteous, holy, and gracious and loving and merciful, right? I mean, as a judge, he says, look, this this sin was committed. There has to be a payment for this sin. But in a triune nature, Jesus says, okay, I'll pay it, right? You be the judge, I'll, and I'll, I'll pay the fine. And so there's just so many pieces that fit together when we look at this. We are not Trinitarian by accident. It is a, it is a big deal, and we need, to, um, we need to be aware of that. So what I want us to do, I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, I'm going to turn it over to the campus pastors, and we're going to, um, we're going to repeat the Athanasian Creed uh, once in your life. Uh, if you haven't done it before, we're going to repeat this uh, long creed. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Spirit of God, we come uh, before you now to... Um, to marvel at who you are. We cannot grasp it. We cannot wrap our minds around uh, your mysterious nature. We know it's not surprising. It's not surprising that our finite minds cannot fully comprehend your majesty. Uh, We know that that this idea that you're one God and three persons is not irrational, but it just is, it's beyond us. And so we marvel. And... uh, We pause to acknowledge that uh, we depend upon um, you to be both a holy and righteous God that can be trusted uh, to always do the right thing and to be a gracious, loving, merciful God. 
So we thank you for your plan. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would love us enough to send your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you would defer to the Father and accept this mission uh, to, to become one of us, to be fully one of us, so you could represent us on the cross while remaining fully God. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, and uh, Spirit of God, uh, we continue to seek you to work in our hearts, to help us um, see your fruit ripen in our hearts. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Um, help, help all of those things come to fullness in us. And we pray this, um, triune God. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.